Welcome to Days of Roar, a Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorosh. I'm here with Tigers beat writer Evan Petzold. Evan, you've made it to episode 20, 21, including the emergency pod. They have not fired me yet, and I consider that a good thing. So today, you're located in the beautiful city of Kansas City, home of barbecue, and from our discussions, a city that you actually like because you know your way around there. You've been there 75 times. Yeah, Kansas City is the place to be. Joe's Kansas City Barbecue is the spot. I go there every time. It's as good as it gets. Yeah, I'm excited to be back in in town. I mean, Seattle's nice. Seattle's beautiful. I, I love it. Being able to walk around, you know, downtown, you know, pregame, postgame. Um, it's pretty lively and there's always a lot going on and just kind of has, you know, good city vibes. Kansas City is not the same, but it's very like, it's a routine for me, right? Like the, the drive to the ballpark, I know where I'm parking every time. The parking is really easy. Um, this is a hotel that I've stayed at, you know, several times now. And obviously there's Joe's Kansas City Barbecue, like I said, which, which I really like. So not as much of a downtown feel in Kansas City because of where I stay and, and then the drive to the ballpark, which is, you know, right next to Arrowhead Stadium where the, the Chiefs play. And it's basically just kind of in a parking lot. But I'm okay with that because it's easy, it's simple, and it's, it's, it's kind of repeatable, right? And I like that. Um, there's no questions on what I'm getting when I come to Kansas City. I know exactly what it's going to be, um, except for the kind of car that I'm going to get. Because I always rent a car, and this time I got upgraded to a Camaro. It's pretty sweet. I'm excited to cruise around in that, you know, going back and forth from the hotel to the ballpark. But yeah, no, I, I like Kansas City. I'm happy to be here, and we'll see what the Tigers can do. They got four games to, to try to make something happen before getting back home. All right. Well, we took two or three in Kansas City. Should be happy about that. Although I was hoping for more (laughs) on Sunday. Left a lot of guys on base and scored zero runs, which is something we'll talk about later because we need to define what a good team is and what a good team isn't. I think you saw a lot of what I think yesterday as opposed to the first two days of the series, including Saturday which you and I agreed was easily their best game of 2023. Yeah, I think that kind of jumps right into the first question of the big two. Like, you know, you you wrote it down here on the show sheet. When will you classify the Tigers as good? And I think they're a better team than they were last year. I think they're a better team than they've been in a while. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that just based on the performances that we've seen. But you know, we talk about it all the time, Mark. It's not what can you do for me sometimes, what can you do for me all the time. There you and go. It's that level of consistency, right? Like you're able to beat two of the best pitchers in the American League, you know, Friday and Saturday against the Mariners. When you take down Luis Castillo and you take down George Kirby to finish it off, I mean, that that would be a great feeling. And in Sunday, the Tigers just weren't able to do it. You got into a situation where, you know, you had a runner on base in the first five innings. You had runners on base in six of nine innings. And he didn't score any runs. They weren't able to, to, to move him up on the bases. It was a mix of, you know, we'll toss in a competitive at-bat here and then, you know, non-competitive at-bats. And then, oh, we'll give you another one. And then, yeah, no, these at-bats are shit. Like, it, it, it was this back-and-forth game and there's no consistency there. And, and that's what I loved about the Tigers Friday and Saturday is just their ability to, one, hit the long ball, but also just to move guys up on the bases and, and allow there to be action and put some pressure on the opposing pitchers. Like, that that changes everything about a game. And so, you know, in a game like Sunday, when you're able to get guys on base, but there's no movement on the bases, you know, there, there, there's not as much pressure. It's like, okay, there's one guy on base and, um, you know, you're facing Bryce Miller, who's a rookie and, and a really good rookie who mixes his stuff against the Tigers. You know, he's obviously known for his fastball, but, you know, he does mix in the secondaries more against the Tigers than, than against other teams. And they just weren't able to string together, you know, a couple hits in a row. And that was the problem. And, and it wasn't, and that's the thing that I like about them in the in the first two games as well is it wasn't just you know stringing together hits. It was like a hit here, a walk here, and then boom, a home run. And that changes everything about the offense. So I do want to give them credit for the way they played Friday and Saturday. I think that's that's what a good team does is play like that. Um, you know, in those first two games, but a good team also finishes out the series and and they don't lose a game two nothing. They're able to scratch across a couple runs. They're able to take advantage of a good pitching performance both from you know, Reese Olsen, who started on Sunday, and then the bullpen as well. So it, it was kind of a mixed bag. But at the same time, if you're looking at it from like a scale standpoint, I mean, the scales weighed heavily in the favor of 
this is a good baseball team. But I just would really like to see him finish that off on Sunday. That's, you know, my entire premise of trying to explain what a good team is. A good team yesterday comes out, finds a way to win. I mean, the Detroit Tigers have not won three games in a row since May 3rd. So hard to but, call yourself. I mean, you got to give them credit for being in position to find a way, though, right? I mean, you got to give them – I mean, look, they won the first two games. Gary Carpenter hits three homers in the first two games, has his first two-homer game of his career. On Saturday, he gets hot. The Tigers are riding, you know, what he's able to do. And they're in position to be that good team on Sunday. Like, you have to give them credit for that, right? I thought they played a great game Saturday night. I thought they played a pretty good game Friday night. They got quite lucky, quite a few balls that were hit by Seattle as opposed to yesterday, the ball was flying mm-hmm. on Friday night, and Erod could have just as easily allowed seven runs as the outcome that he left with, which was two runs. And, you know, Saturday they played great. I mean, the glue on Saturday, let's be real blunt about it, was Riley Green. Riley Green made everything happen on Saturday night. Tough two-out single, got him a run. Big walker. Got a huge walk, ignited an inning, torque flipped one over the second baseman's head, and kaboom, carried Carpenter three runs. And I thought the Tigers were trying to run out of the bank. They thought they'd rob them, and they were trying to get out of there with the money. So, you know, that, but, it, you know, you have to understand, you could start seeing it in this series more noticeably than any time this year. Teams are pitching around Riley Green they are going to want to face Spencer Torkelson hitting behind him. Riley Green is going to start walking like you cannot believe. All right? And we'll see what happens. Because, because he's a beast. Because he's a beast, and yeah. he, he makes things happen. So who would you rather face in an important situation? Riley Green or Spencer Torkelson? <laughs> that shouldn't even be a question, Mark. Yeah, I, I do think right. we know we know the answer to that. I mean, look, you know, you see what Torkelson did um, in Sunday's game. He struck out three times. So, like, who, who's more prone to strike out? Who's more prone to, um, you know, not give you that competitive AB that that you really want? It's obviously Torkelson. You're going to pitch around Riley Green to face him. But I do want to say, like, it is really refreshing in this past series to see what the Tigers look like. With the middle of that order, Riley Green, Spencer Torkelson, Kerry Carpenter, you know, pushing Baez down in the lineup a little bit. We'll get to Javi um, here in a minute. But I, I do think it's really refreshing to see that middle of the order. And I think, you know, as much as there's clamor for, hey, call up, you know, Colt Keith, call up Justin Henry Malloy, call up Parker Meadows. I do think that this is like a developing, young, middle of the lineup. And I'm interested to see how this thing turns out, you know, over the next month or so. You know, can Kerry Carpenter really be a guy that can can he can he pound you twenty home runs in the big leagues, right? Like, can Spencer Torkelson come around at some point? Um, we've seen him get the ball in the air, even if it's just flipping the ball up for bloop singles. Um, I think that's encouraging to see, as opposed to line drives on the ground. Oh, like I, I'm tired of seeing exit velocity on the ground. Like, either get it in the air or give me a bloop single, whatever it is. Uh, Tigers will take it. Riley Green's a monster. We all know it. So can that middle of the order really be something? I think the Tigers need to figure that out. Um, and then you really figure out, okay, can we pick our spots and, and insert a Colt Keith here or a Justin Henry Malloy here? Or, or where does Parker Meadows fit into this mix? I like seeing all these guys back and healthy. I like seeing Kerry Carpenter healthy in the lineup, Riley Green healthy in the lineup. Those, those are big things. Akil Badu being able to, to do what he does at the bottom of the order now, um, as opposed to having to fill in up there at the top of the order. You bring back Nick Maton from AAA Toledo. He's more of a six, seven hitter for you now as opposed to a four or five hitter. There's a lot of balance in this lineup. I love the middle of it. And I'm excited to see what these guys can do because they are pretty young and they don't have a ton of big league experience yet. Yeah. Well, you love it more than I do because basically here's what I see. I, see, I just think it's fascinating. I, well, I see Riley Green getting pitched around to pitch to Torkelson. And I see Kerry Carpenter going to get pitched around a lot more to face Javi Baez. So I think it's nice to have two really dangerous left-hand bats in the lineup, but until people hitting behind them start being more productive, 
the quality of pitches they're going to see is not going to be great in leverage situations. Nobody you on, know, people will take their chances. But you know, I, you're I smart. Think, you're a smart guy, Mark, and you just slammed the door on my optimism. But it reminds me of what we saw in the ninth inning on Sunday. Torkelson. I mean, Paul Sewell comes in out of the bullpen, bottom of the ninth. Tigers need to make something happen. They need something needs to be something needs to happen, right? You're, you're down two, and you got to find a way. Torkelson strikes out swinging. Gary Carpenter hits a single. It's a fly ball to the left. You know, he gets on base. Matt Veerling strikes out. Javi Baez strikes out. So that slams the door on the optimism, right? Like when you talk about having those guys in the middle of the order. Now, you know, Riley Green grounded out in the eighth inning, whatever, you know, that whatever that doesn't matter. But point is, is that when you need somebody to make something happen, again, how confident do you feel in either A, Spencer Torkelson or B, Javier Baez? You don't feel great. I think that's your point. All right, so let's move to what we've discussed many times because it gets boring as we bring up the negatives. Tonight, play the Kansas City Royals, start a three-game series. Three-game series or four-game series we're playing? Four. Four. I'm sorry. It's got to be a grind then. Man, go to Seattle, come to KC, play four games, fly home, play the Padres. It doesn't sound like much fun, no days off. So if... You're going to start taking the Tigers more seriously. They need to get a win tonight. Otherwise, otherwise, what the first two games in Seattle mean? Nothing. Okay? So let's move on. Big two, question number two. Elephant in the room. Let's talk Avi Baez. You and I, more than any two you know, people in town that talk about this stuff, have probably given Javi a pass more than any two people because we understand the things he brings to the table on an everyday basis, just outstanding defense, fifth best defender in Major League Baseball, is how they graded by OAA. And he's got 45 RBIs, which is the fifth most by a shortstop in Major League Baseball, which is pretty amazing. He's got a at least in going into this series against Seattle, his, his batting average with runners in scoring positions about 50, 50 points higher than it is <laughs> against everything else. So, But he just cannot hit the baseball. And it's a function of a couple of things. A, can't hit the fastball, which we're going to get into the numbers about. And B, just refuses to walk. I mean, in coming into the season... We heard about a commitment to try to take more pitches, hit better pitches, try to walk more. And he did early in the season. Mm-hmm. He's got seven walks in his last 280-plus plate appearances, which uh, I got to tell you, um, if I put a pair of shoes in the batter's box, they would probably walk more than seven times in 280 plate appearances just by taking pitches. So that is a huge issue because when you're not hitting it all and then you're not walking it all, it becomes just a dead spot in the order where nothing's happening. It's, it's worse than having Nick Maton up there. So you and I had a discussion last night. You pointed out some very interesting facts about what's happened to him for the first time in his career. Why don't you share with everybody what the problem is? I want to ask you, actually, because I brought this up to, to you and I said, hey, you know, you know what Javi Baez is hitting against fastballs. And obviously, I didn't share the data with you at that point. But let's just go back to, to last night, Mark. And if I when I asked you that question, like, what, what did you think? Like when I asked you, what, what, like, what, pretend like you don't know the data. What would you have thought Javi Baez is hitting against fastballs? Well, I would think the only pitch he can hit normally is a fastball. So I would have to think he was at least hitting 250. And that's what I thought too. And then I went and I, lo- I looked it up and I actually wrote this in a story, you know, back I think it was during the all-star break talking about, you know, what Javi Baez and the Tigers need to do if they want to make the playoffs. And it kind of, you know, weaved in some of the stuff that Scott Harris had said on the radio about, you know, the roster, the, the standings are going to determine what they do at the trade deadline. And um, I kind of mentioned, you know, Hey, here's what Spencer Torkelson has been doing. They're going to need more out of Javi Baez. And that's when I first like, dug into this data on the fastballs. And this is when I first figured it out. And Mark, he's betting 196 against fastballs, four-seam fastballs inside the strike zone. 
and almost all of the balls in play are to right field. Almost all of the balls in play are to right field. All but two of the balls in play to the outfield are to right field. Which is highly unusual for Javi Baez. And I refer to this problem as a Torkelson (laughs) because we spent 500 at bats in 2022 watching Spencer Torkelson unable to hit a fastball. He's late, but, but Javi Baez is late every single time on fastballs inside the strike zone. So that, that's the problem is like he's not hitting fastballs. So the only pitches that he's really doing damage on are breaking balls and off speeds. And he can't sit on those pitches because he's going to swing at them when they're in the other batters by the other side of the batter's box. Correct. So it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a mess. It's, it's, it's not good. He's wrapping his body way too much on his backswing coming back. And because of that, he's, he's late every he's single late. time. So for those of you who have DM me, who have tweeted to me, who have tweeted to Evan, who have tweeted to the Twitter sphere, who have yelled it out their front screen door. Yes, Javi Baez at the plate stinks right now. But guess what? He's not opting out. He's not walking away from $100 million. The Tigers aren't getting a new shortstop. They're not giving another team $50 million to fix him. So the answer is major league teams have to deal with these situations. They invested in a player. He's got a back of a baseball card. They know what he did before. He got paid for it. So what the Tigers have to do is figure out how to fix Javi Baez. And I'll be fascinated to see if they're able to do that this year. I know they're working with him on it. I mean, he he's he's putting in the work. Like, there's no question about Javi Baez's work ethic. Like, he wants to be good. He hates the fact that he's not playing well. Like, he's very well aware of his performance. He's working in the cages. He's trying to fix, you know, the fact that he's rapping way too much. And and that basically just means he's turning way too much, you know, as a part of his load and his swing. And then he's way late on on fastball. So he's working on it. Like, that's not something that's like oblivious to him for, for people out there that are curious about. You know, does he even care? You know, is he is he coachable? Like, yes, he, he is very coachable. But again, like the implementation of it is different than the practice. Like you have to go out there and implement what you're working on. And also for people out there, if you're listening, I mean, I'm so tired of seeing tweets that are it tweeted at me, tweeted at other beat writers, just again, thrown out there on Twitter. That's like cut hobby bias. Like that's not happening. So just like stop. Like don't don't waste your thumbs. Type in cut hobby bias. Don't don't waste a tweet you know, throwing that out there because it's not happening. So just stop. Like it's, it's not the same as the Jonathan scope situation, not even close. So like, let's just shut that down first and foremost. I do want to give credit to hobby. Like I love the outs above average 99 percentile. You know, he, you know what you're getting out of him at shortstop. He makes plays that nobody else is going to make runners in scoring position. Mark, you referenced him, but he's hitting 274 with runners in scoring position as three homers, um, you know, and a handful of doubles, in those, uh, in those opportunities, the OPS still isn't great at 760. But again, hitting two, uh, 274 with runners in scoring position, you're going to take that all day. But just the numbers across the board are rough. Like it's, it's a 575 OPS. He's one of the worst hitters in Major League Baseball. If not the worst hitter in Major League Baseball, it's a toss-up between him and Tim Anderson right now. Yeah, I, sent you, I sent you something last night, which were the worst hitters in baseball based upon WRC plus and 200 plate appearances. And shockingly, number one was Tim Anderson, who has fallen off a cliff as a hitter, unless he's facing the Detroit Tigers. And it's who is normally just a really, really good player and has just lost all capacity to hit. He does have something in common with the number two worst hitter by WRC plus, Javi Baez. Neither of them will take a walk. They refuse to walk. Their walk percentages are both under 4%. And it's a common theme. I mean, if you, if you do not walk over 6.5%, it is almost impossible to be a good hitter. You look at the top 50 hitters by WRC Plus in Major League Baseball, 
And I think 45 of them have a walk rate greater than 6.5%. You look at the bottom 30 hitters by WRC plus, and I think 20 of them had walk rates under 6.5%. So you know what worries way, me about Javi ba- hey, hey, Mark, real quick. You know what worries me about Javi Baez, though? In July, for his entire career, it's 285. 808 OPS. He's terrible in August. This is supposed to be his month. Yeah, it's it's ugly. By the way, the 20th worst hitter in Major League Baseball this year, if it makes anybody feel any better, Trey Turner. Ooh. So you could be paying a shortstop $30 million instead of 25 and have a fresh contract with eight more years to go or nine more years to go. So... You know, it's pretty amazing that three guys that are all-star shortstops, you know, pretty, you know, have all multiple times, Javi Baez, Tim Anderson, Trey Turner, are all terrible this year. So it happens. Carlos Correa, also kind of terrible at the plate this year. So he's been he's been getting better. I think he's been getting hotter here recently. But again, you go look at the OPS plus, look at the WRC plus, it's not an above average hitter right now for the entire season. So not terrible. On the come up, but at the same time, it, he's still hitting three uh, two thirty two. So when you're hitting, that that's not great. And here's what I'd say to you, Javi Baez, you know, being much more of a force offensively than he is, is far more important than any other player on the team. If they could add him to, you know to uh, Riley Green and uh, Kerry Carpenter, I, I would think the Tigers would win a hell of a lot more baseball games than they're winning now. It's very, very tough for them with only two left-hand hitters, and they're going to get pitched around. So Javi Baez, I mean, even if he was 90% a career norm, would be doing a hell of a lot of damage, take my word for it. All right, let's move on to happier things. We saw the return of Bro Brisky. It's a hell of a story. Had uh, two impingement treatments, hasn't pitched in the major leagues in over 365 days. Walked in from the bullpen the other night and threw absolute lightning. We're going to talk about Bo Brisky, but first, we're going to take a break. All right, Bo Brisky, back after... As I said, 360-plus days on the sidelines. Been rehabbing for a long time. Had an impingement procedure on his UCL. Been a long road from him. Walked in through absolute lightning. Talk to me about it. It was so nasty. It was good to finally see him out there. They brought him back before the All-Star break, but they didn't get to use him um, in the two games that you know he had been around for against the Toronto Blue Jays to get to the All-Star break. He has that waiting period where, you know, you, you're not going to pitch because there's no games and, you know, finally gets in a game on Saturday and man, oh man, he was just nasty. Uh, right ulnar nerve entrapment. That was the issue. He hasn't pitched in the big league since July, 2022 uh, because of that injury. And it was a weird situation because it started out as kind of a forearm thing and then it moved up to a shoulder thing and, and they couldn't really figure out like what was actually going on. He tried to rehab it even without knowing what the actual injury was in the off season gets to spring training. He's thrown in spring training. The stuff is nasty in, in spring training. He's getting hit around a lot. Cause he's not locating. Um, and they finally realize, okay, like this is a right ulnar nerve entrapment and we got to go through a couple of procedures to kind of get you right. And you're going to have to take some time on the, on the injured list. And so he's on the injured list for the first like 15 weeks of the season and finally gets activated and man, oh man, First pitch, 97.1 mile an hour, four-seam fastball for a called strike. And when I saw that first pitch come through at 97.1 and he dotted it, and I was just like, okay, like this could be really interesting. Let's see how the rest of this outing goes. And he came in in a non, you know, it wasn't like a perfect situation for him to come in. Um, He entered in the seventh inning, replacing Michael Lorenzen, runners on first and second base. Lorenzen had just walked back-to-back batters. There were two outs. And he's got to face Mike Ford. So you got to make your best pitches. He goes two fastballs, then two changeups. And it was, it was beautiful. He struck him out. I mean, it was, yeah, got, got out of the jam and is able to go one plus and get back out there and, and go again. 
gives up a leadoff double and then gets out with the you know, three straight outs, including two strikeouts, and that kind of finishes his outing. It was nasty. Fastball average 96.6 miles an hour, which is up from 94.3 miles an hour last year. His changeup, which is the best secondary pitch in his arsenal, averaged 87.5 miles an hour, which is up from 82 miles an hour last year. So he's seen velocity boost in you know, arguably his two most important pitches, the fastball and the changeup. I thought his sinker was really good. This guy can be a high leverage reliever. This guy is a reliever. He is not a starter. That's my opinion on it. Um, they're going to leave the door open for all that. I want to know your thoughts there, but man, he looks dynamic coming out of the bullpen. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this last night, you and I. Uh, and my answer was, he's not a starter until he can spin something. And he needs a slider, yeah. yeah. And it's he's going to pitch leverage relief. Um, I love that that White followed him up. It was so AJ Hinch that night, and you know. Jose Cisneros had a really good career for the Detroit Tigers, but basically, um, you know, you can see the handwriting on the wall about what's going to transpire here in the next few weeks. I don't think there's any chance that Jose Cisneros is still on the roster, you know, post-trade deadline. Now when you got these two guys to take a spot and, you know, Jose is going to be a free agent. So you can almost guarantee yourself the fact that uh, he gone, he gone. So yeah, Brisky was pretty exciting. One is, you know, what I was most excited not just was about the stuff; it was about the ability to repeat the stuff into a quadrant of the strike zone relentlessly. So let's uh, let's hope that continues. And it was pretty great to see him back and see him be a part that can be very, very useful. All right, we got Tarek Skubal. Going to slide in here in the KC series. They waited a long time to use them. At the end of the rotation coming out of the break, I've mentioned to you that, you know, obviously they're being insanely conservative with him. You know, you think he's going to throw 60 to 70 pitches. I'll be amazed if he throws any over 60. It'll be a short start for him tomorrow. Um then they're going to maybe give him an extra day the next time through the rotation and make it a bullpen game. They're trying to protect him. They're trying to avoid arm fatigue. And I would expect this to continue for the rest of the year. How about you? Yeah, you read my notes. <laughs> I read your notes. I'm serious. That's, 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 what I, that's what I wrote down right before. I mean, it's going to be yeah, another short start against Kansas City. Um, coming up here on on Tuesday, and Tigers will probably do a bullpen game against the Padres to give him extra rest, and they're trying to protect him. They want to avoid fatigue. Like this is something that you know you don't want to mess with. And and look, like here's the thing: they they might go the whole season protecting Tarek Skubal. And for me, as as somebody who's invested in Tarek Skubal, who wants to see Tarek Skubal succeed, I think that's the the best way to go about it. Now, Tarek Skubal probably wants to go out there and he wants to go seven innings, eight innings nine innings. He would love to go throw a complete game and he probably feels like he can. Um, and, I, and I'm sure he could, but then to go back and, and, you know, maybe you throw eight innings, one day, one game, and then, you know, you're on regular rest and the next game you go out there and it's five innings. And then maybe the next time it's six, and then maybe the next time you get hit around early and somehow you're out of there in the fourth. And then maybe you go eight the next time. Like that's just a lot of up and down in terms of, you know, having to go sit down, get back up, short start, longer start, like to keep him at a consistent pitch limit throughout the rest of the season. Like if they end up doing that, which, which they might, and even in September, if they can get there, you know, we got, we got to talk about what the rotation will look like, but if they can get to September, they could go six man in September just for Tarek Skubal. So you read my show notes, but also at the same time, I'm going to give a little more context there. They could make that a reality. It just depends on what their rotation looks like and who their options are. A lot of that depends on what do you get back for, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez and Michael Lorenzen. Can any of your younger pitchers in the minor leagues come up and and help you out? Like, is Joey Wentz going to be ready at that point? Is Fido going to be ready at that point? I would argue they probably deserve another opportunity uh, once you get into September. So those are two easy fill-ins. Like, again, a lot has to happen before we get there. But they could go six-man in, in September just to protect Eric Skubal. I think a guy that they're going to have to decide if they take a look at in September is Cater Montero, who right now... You like now, him, don't you? You know what? That's something that, that's interesting because back when um, 
and I have a story about him on, on freep.com. Now it wasn't from, you know, this past spring training, it was from the spring training before that. So that was, you know, when the lockdown was going on and I had a couple of people around, you know, Tiger's camp there coming up to me and saying, Hey, Kyder Montero, like watch out for him. Like he's got a big spin. I, I don't know if it's a curveball that has now morphed into a slider. I haven't kept up with him a ton, but he's got big spin. And, you know, when a guy can spin the ball, obviously it catches your attention and it had the attention of some folks around the Tigers, not named Al Avila back there during, uh, during that spring training when it was the minor league mini camp. So it's interesting you bring his name up. He's been absolutely electric the last month. He's eight and two on the year, 95, 98, really good slider. Um, probably the second best pitching prospect they have because, you know, Wilmer Flores, although he's been pretty damn good the last six weeks, stuff isn't quite as good as the numbers seem to be. And, you know, I've never been a huge time Madden guy, but I've come to learn after watching Reese Olsen and, you know, they put him in a box and sawed him in half and waved the magic wand over him. And all of a sudden, he looks really damn good. So before he started, uh, you know, being worked on by the law firm of uh, Lundfeder Nieves, it was a totally different thing. And now all of a sudden, he's a movie star. So, uh, but yeah, I, you know, Keter Montero is pretty interesting, probably after Joe their best pitching prospect right now and the stuff is real so let's keep an eye on that i mean at the same time we need to start asking ourselves i, I don't think there's much question erod's getting moved and unless the offers are just horrendous for michael lorenzen he's getting moved also and i i think they'll probably see something of value i saw a cincinnati uh blogger uh, make an offer, and I just want you to know the box of half-eaten Ritz crackers and uh, the uh, old wrapper from Taco Bell will probably not be enough to get Michael Lorenzen. You're going to have to offer something of actual value. But once that happens, they're going to have to fill out a starting rotation, and it's looking pretty slim pickings, don't you think? I mean, you know, Joey Wentz, personal favorite of mine looks like they stole his mojo he has lost all command of his pitches a and is extremely hittable alex fiedo since the first seven miraculous starts of his major league career has pitched to an era of 1148 since those first seven starts so it's not exactly something that you want to roll out there every five days bringing those two up so you got Mark, you also know Reese Olsen is just getting started in his big league career. They're going to want to protect him. You know, we've already seen them do that with him, having him in a, a piggyback role, you know, a few times before the all-star break. So even down the stretch, they're not going to want to push him to throw six, seven innings. They don't even want to do that right now. Like they're trying to, to be conservative with him as well. So if you do go to a six man, you're going to have to rely on in, in some way, shape or form one or, or both of Ty Madden or Wilmer Flores. And that's what it comes down to. And Kyder Montero, you know, of course, like could end up being in that mix. Like, I think that well, that's, that's definitely a possibility. I understand why you like him, but you do realize that like, you're going to have, you're just going to have to, I mean, you're just going to have to rely on somebody else. Now Montero is going to be rule five eligible. So you might need to add him to the 40 men anyway, you know, anyway. when the season ends, if you want to keep him. So he would be a good option to come up and, and, and fill your rotation if you don't feel very confident about your other two arms that are in, in Erie right now. But and, yeah, you man, it's gonna 40, be, and you'll have 40 man spots once some trades happen because you're going to also for probably sure. Jose, Jose Cisnero. So, for sure. It's going to be um, Terry Scubel, Matt Manning, Reese Olsen. You're going to have to go with Joey Wentz, Alex Fido, and I think Montero could be a good six. It's, that's, that's a good early pick by you. So. I, I think they'll have to deal with that, and it'll be very interesting to see how they work that out. Do, does it really make you feel like the Tigers are making a run in a really terrible division if that's what their starting rotation is, right? So I, I, I wanted to I want to talk about some of the decisions they've made and why, but really I also want to discuss Alex Lang here a little bit. Alex Lang is very, very good. But Alex Lang for the last six weeks has been really quite frightening. And I tweeted out 
you know, a set of numbers that discussed how frightening he's been. And I want to share them so that we can factually discuss it. So last 15 games of Alex Lang, 14.1 innings pitched, uh, 16 runs, 15 earned, 14 hits. He's only stranded 54.3% of the base runners that he's, you know, pitched with on base. He's walked 14. So you got 28 base runners in 14.1 innings. Okay. He struck out 16. He's allowed three homers in 14 innings. He's got a 27.3% home run fly ball ratio, which basically would, you know, get you DFA'd if it ever continued for a long time. He's got a 42.9% hard hit percentage, which is atrocious. And here's really what gets to the problem of what's going on here. He's uh, only thrown 55% strikes, period, in that period of time. From 129 balls, 161 (laughs) strikes. That's really not too good. He's thrown 50% first strikes. At first strike percentage, just unacceptable. AJ tell you he wanted up over 65. So he's only got a 13.4% swinging strike rate. And prior to his command issues, his curveball was getting 55% swing and misses. So all of a sudden, he's gone from a swing and miss pitcher to can't get any swing and misses. He's been scored upon in eight of four, eight of fifteen games. Not acceptable. He's only had four outings that were a one, two, three. So basically, zero fastball command. It's curious that he keeps closing. I'm just, you know, AJ's talked about this a little bit. They're doing some things to try to help him. Can't really throw his fastball for strikes, so they basically spit on the curveball because they know he can't throw a fastball for a strike. So talk to me a little bit about what AJ's told you and about what you're seeing. Yeah, it really goes back to that game against the Chicago White Sox back on June 4th when Jake Berger hit the grand slam off Alex Lang. And I think that everything has really turned negative for him since then. And, you know, a little bit of up and down, like he had a couple bounce back performances that were nice. Um, But yeah, like he just hasn't had it since then. Remember, this guy won the American League reliever of the month in May. I mean, he, he was absolutely nails in May, and he was unhittable. No, nobody, could, nobody could touch him. And then all of a sudden, he just wasn't landing his pitches. Obviously, throwing strikes has just been a problem for him, you know, kind of across the board. Um, walks are, are going to be a problem. But it was that, again, it was a second-pitch curveball that Lang threw and, uh, to Jake Berger back on, on June 4th. Stayed inside the strike zone. Berger hit it for a grand slam. Game over. And I think that that kind of spooked Alex Lang a little bit just because it said, wow, like, okay, somebody can hit my curveball. And then we saw just kind of over and over again, teams aren't swinging at that curveball. And here's what I find interesting is last year he threw his changeup nearly 20% of the time. This season, 9% of the time. He needs to throw more changeups. He needs to throw more strikes. He needs to not rely on his curveball as much right now. And he needs to rely on his ability to pitch. Because dumping curveballs below the zone, it's just not going to work. Because when you can eliminate a pitch, good teams are going to tear him apart. You just say, hey, we're not swinging at a slider. I mean, we're not swinging at the curveball. You, you look for curveball at a hand, you do not swing at it, and um, you, know, you take your walks and you hunt fastball. Because that's really what he is now, is he's a two-pitch pitcher, he's barely using his changeup, and if you can eliminate the curveball, then you can sit sinker and if it's in the zone, you're going to swing. And if it's not, well, then you just don't swing and you take your walk across the board. Like it's, that's, that's about as easy as it's going to get for good teams. So I think he's got to mix in his chain a little bit more and become a three-pitch pitcher again, give himself a little bit more diversity on the mound. That way it's not just relying on an inconsistent curveball and a sinker that he can't throw for strikes. You need to have something else in, in your back pocket to go out there and attack with. How he doesn't have till, it right now. So I, how long? How long till they swap Foley and Lang? Well, it should have already happened. J- Jason Foley should be the closer right now. Jason Foley should be pitching the ninth inning. Um, if it if it doesn't happen here, by the time the Tigers get back home to Detroit, um, I'm going to be flabbergasted. It's just it's just not. I mean, I understand Alex Lang is probably your best pitcher, just stuff wise. I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, his swing and miss rate is, is just off the charts. His chase rate is off the charts. But his walk rate's terrible. 
And Jason Foley is not going to walk guys. Jason Foley is going to throw strikes. He's not going to get the strikeouts. He's not going to have the big swing and misses, but he's going to keep the ball on the ground and he's going to do his job, get in, get out. And, and he's been pitching like a man on a mission, somebody who has something to prove. I mean, he, he very well should have been the Tigers all-star over Michael Lorenzen this year. He wasn't. And I don't know if he's got a chip on his shoulder, but he just seems like he's pitching angry. We saw him get ejected the other night in Seattle, um, arguing with the umpire, even though he struck out back to back guys to escape a jam. Like, like my, my point is, is that Jason Foley is pitching like a closer. Alex Lang is not pitching like a closer. So I, I have more faith and trust in Foley right now. That doesn't mean that Alex Lang can't get back to being that guy again. We, we all know what he's capable of. But I think for him, it comes down to throwing more strikes and please throw more change-ups. That's it. All right. I couldn't agree with you more on every one of these topics. It's why I wanted to discuss it, wanted to discuss the actual data behind what the problems are. And uh, I think it's important for Alex, get Alex Lang back on track. It's too important part of the team. In the bullpen Way too and, important. And, and the winning. All right, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to discuss the return of Wolfie Maytown. All right, Wolfie Maytown recalled from Toledo. Why? I have no idea. Actually, I do have an idea. I mean, he's made some swing revisions. They want to see what he's got. And before they go to plan B about replacing him on a more permanent basis. They want to give him a shot to see what he can do. So I would expect he's going to get, you know, 35 to 50 at bats to show more than what he showed. Had a big game Saturday night, hit a dawn. Still doesn't necessarily look too dangerous up there. Not walking yet. Look pretty non-competitive yesterday, but we're going to see in the next, you know, in the next couple of weeks, if changes have helped them, what he's doing, and uh, they're going to make a commitment to him before they start bringing up, you know, Cole Keith or Malloy or, you know, other, or Parker Meadows. They're, you know, this is probably Wolfie's last stand for at least the 2023 season coming up right here in these next 35 to 50 at-bats. You're down there. Tell me what you're hearing. Well, it pays to be on the 40, man. So that definitely helps, uh, both for Nick Maton and for Parker Meadows. If this, you know, Nick Maton experience, you know, falls off to the wayside here at some point, it always pays to be on the 40, man. Let's let's keep that in mind. And yeah, I mean, look, it was good to see him back in the clubhouse. Like I, I, I like Nick Maton's personality. I think he's a a good guy and somebody that the Tigers need around. Obviously, you've got to produce like that. That comes first and foremost, but just to hear him chirping with the guys in the clubhouse again and kind of some of that banter back and forth. And um, there were a few times, you know, in Seattle where there was a, a game on TV after the Tigers game or before the Tigers game and everyone was kind of huddled around and watching it. There were some eyes on Angels Astros as those games were being played out. And just to hear, you know, kind of some of the guys talking over that game and then just some of like the one-liners that, that Nick Maton has that, you know, no, no one really like everyone laughs at it. No one's really expecting it. And like all of a sudden there it is. And like, oh, yeah, there's there's Nick Maytown and he makes everybody laugh and it, it, it lightens the mood. And it's kind of like, yeah, this guy's kind of crazy, but like we love him. Um, that That's the vibe that I get when I watch those guys interact with with Nick Maton. And so it's a blast having him back. But again, production has to follow. And he went down to AAA, played 11 games there, had a 943 OPS. He hit 290 with three doubles, two home runs, seven walks, 10 strikeouts. The biggest thing that stood out to me was just a full commitment to closing off his stance. We saw it a little bit when he was up here with Detroit. I think that's what Scott Harris was mentioning. Um, I think now this is just, it's my opinion, but I think this is what Scott Harris was talking about when he had said, you know, the work behind the scenes is good. Um, we're seeing him, you know, put in the work to try to make changes because we did see at times him close off his stance. Now, sometimes he would hunch over too much. Sometimes he would try to stand up too much or he'd open his stance back up and he'd close it. Like it was almost trying to do something different every single night. And if it didn't work, they did make another change. He went down to Toledo and, and I view it as like a brand new commitment to this closed stance. And I asked AJ Hinch about it. I asked Nick Maton about it. AJ said it allows him to just stay on the ball a lot longer. 
Um, and so basically saying, hey, look, like you can't just hit like pull side in the air. And essentially when he was having the open stance where his one, you know, his front leg was back and then he'd bring it in as he was swinging, um, he was trying to get under the ball. He was trying to launch the ball um, to the pull side and close off that stance. You see a little bit more contact to the middle of the field, um, a little bit more contact to the opposite field. And you start seeing a little bit more singles, which are good because, you know, Nick Maton is basically uh, was basically a power hitter who couldn't hit for average at all and struck out a ton and just didn't have competitive at bats when he was up here you know, earlier this season. I think the best version of him still taps into that power while drawing walks, while still having some strikeout issues, sure, but puts the ball in play, is able to keep the line moving and doesn't just rely on the home run ball. That's probably the best version of Nick Maton. So I think closing that stance is a, a positive sign, and you know we'll see if it works. I, I liked what he did when he played on uh, on Saturday, on, or excuse me, on Fridays in Friday's game, and had the big home run, made a nice defensive play at second base to to save two runs. That ball could have trickled into the outfield, but he made a diving stop and you know scooped it up throughout to first base. And for some reason, the guy in third base didn't run home. But if that ball gets through, two runs score because there was a runner on second and third um, when that play was was happening. So. Good signs from him early in his return. I don't know how well this all goes, but I don't know. I like the fact that he's made some changes. Like, again, we do hat tip all the time. Hat tip to Nick Maton for making some adjustments and coming back trying to be better. Uh, appreciate that he's trying to make changes. When you're hitting 163, you have to. I think you should consider pretty much anything. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad he's trying a few things and I think, you know, you know, my motto about this stuff, show me, don't tell me. So uh, we'll be paying close attention to the next 10, 12 games, see what he's doing. We don't really need to discuss that he's one of the 10 worst infielders by OAA uh, in Major League Baseball. Doesn't seem like that when you watch him play, but, you know, the facts are the facts, people. So... Next, I got some other interesting questions I want to start discussing. Casey Mize ramping up the bullpens. Will we see him in 2023? So Casey Mize took a week off during the All-Star break. He got back to um, got back to throwing, though. Like, he's all good. It was a scheduled off week for him as part of his um, rehab program. My guess, my gut feeling is, yes, we will see Casey Mize in September pitching for the Detroit Tigers. That's my gut feeling. I think he's on the fast track. I, that bullpen that he threw back when the Tigers were playing in Texas, yeah, that was a really nasty bullpen. He was thrown with full conviction. He looked like he was, a, again, I, I referenced it earlier in the pod with a different player, but he looked like a man on a mission. Somebody that was out there with a goal in sight of pitching in 2023. And it wasn't like, it was, it was like easy velo. It was easy feel. Like it wasn't one of those things where it was like, okay, he is like straining to throw as hard as he can. No, like, it was easy. And so, yeah, like if he's able to maintain that trajectory, he doesn't have any setbacks. I think things are going better for Casey Mize than Casey Mize expected and better for Casey Mize than the Tigers initially expected. And not to say that they expect things to go bad, but I just think that they're accelerating at a quicker rate than anyone would have expected. The body's bouncing back. So gut reaction right now, Monday, July 17th, I say, yes, we see Casey Mize in September. Now, As a part of that man rotation. Actually, I want to bring up a little nuance to this because what transpired with Tarek Skubal while he was rehabbing, you know, whether people notice it much or not, but not only a tick in velocity, but the nastiness of his slider and the consistency of landing his slider, both things are enhanced from what they were in 2022. So I am excited to see now that he's healthy enough to throw bullpens between Robin Lund, uh, Chris Fetter, and Juan Nieves, some tweaks they make to Casey Mize. I'm not so sure he'll throw too many splits this year, but, you know, just, you know, fastball, cutter, slider change, I'm sure all those things will be worked on, and I expect to see a better version of Casey Mize than, you know, what he was. Well, 
pre-TJ. Mark, I love the shout out to the law firm. You mentioned them earlier. I'm going to mention them again. Fetter, Juan, Nieves. But let's also remember Casey Mize is a really good pitcher. And he was a really good pitcher in college. And when you have, and again, we have to remember that his Tommy John surgery was not like Matt Boyd's Tommy John surgery, where something all of a sudden pops and he's done. They couldn't figure out what was going on because it lost its elasticity, but it was still intact. So over time, there, there wasn't like one moment where it, boom, it snaps. It was over time, it just stretched and stretched and stretched. And I think because of that, the stuff just got worse. Like, I think we're going to see Casey Mize come back better than we've ever seen him aside from Chris Fetter and Robin Lund. So you combine Casey Mize coming back like, you know, Casey Mize knows he can pitch both with the command and the stuff. Splitter or no splitter, he can be nasty. And the command that he lost, and he never had the command when he was with the Tigers. It just was never what he had when he was at Auburn. And so you you give him the stuff, the command, and the power of Chris Fetter and Robin Lund. I mean, think about it. Pretty exciting. Because yeah, really exciting. We're, we're, we're leaving out a part that we need to remind everybody. Of all the pitchers the Tigers have drafted or developed in this last four or five-year period, Casey Mize is by far the most into data and tinkering and the science of pitching. So, he reminds me of Garrett Cole. He reminds me of Garrett Cole. He gets to the ballpark at the same time that A.J. Hinch gets to the ballpark early in the morning before anybody else. Even now, he's injured. He gets there early. Like That's just how he rolls. And, and look, I'm not surprised that he is, I guess, quote-unquote, ahead because I don't, I don't want to use the word ahead because I think there's still a, a process and you have to stick to it day by day. But there's a reason that the return on his rehab and his throwing program are as, as great as it could possibly be at this point is because he's, he's detail-oriented, he's focused, like he is very locked into the process, and that's just who he is. That's who he is. The reason that he's where he's at right now is because of the work that he's putting in. I, I like Casey Mize as a competitor. I like him as an athlete. I love the stuff. If he has the command, it's going to be great. Sprinkle in the pitching coaches. He could be nasty. So do you think by the 1st of August he goes to the complex league to start there and maybe have a few outings and see how things start progressing and then maybe starts working his way up the ladder at that point? That's what worries me is I know I mentioned, you know, September, I think he joins and he's part of that six man rotation, but then you mentioned the words, you know, well, can he actually start like a rehab assignment August 1st? Like that, that's coming up real quick. Like that's, that's right around the corner. Um, So yeah, like, Maybe I would hope. I think that would be nice. I mean, I know he's coming back and he he's he doing a touch and feel bullpen, um, just coming off of this you know break that he had. But he's throwing a handful of bullpens now, and so to come back, throw a touch and feel. I assume the next bullpen is going to be a real bullpen. I got to check in with him and see is he is he throwing, you know, is he throwing secondary pitches or is, is he still just throwing fastballs? If he's throwing secondary pitches and he's getting that pitch count up, I mean, maybe there's a chance. If not at the beginning of August, maybe by the middle of August, and then we see him for a few starts in September and um, you know maybe one just to, to wrap up the year, last game of the season or something like that. But we'll see. We'll see. I'd, I'd love to see him back, though. My gut feeling right now is yes. But again, you mentioned like a lot has to play out before we get there. Yeah, well, I'm going to send you down there to find that out. Is he with the team in Kansas City? Nah, he's, he's, in, he's in Lakeland right now. He's been all down right, there so. since the All-Star break, so he's not around. All right, so he's going to do all this work in Lakeland. Is he coming back with the team uh, when coming, they come coming, home? Yeah, no? yeah, coming back when they come home. So yeah, I mean he and he. I mean this is obviously all very public, but like he's got a place down there in in Florida, so he's down there at home, um, getting his work in. And I did that during the All Star break, um, staying down there just until the Tigers get back to Comerica Park, and then he'll report back there. But it just gives him a chance, to like you know, go home for um you know go home home for the all-star break and then get to you know work out at the lakeland facility for a little bit all the guys are down there like turnbull is down there right now um he threw a live bp by the way so he should be making his way back soon he needs one more of those that's going to happen at some point early this week so that could be a uh, just somebody to monitor because look if they can get another starter back you know they're going to get him back if they can showcase him a little bit before the deadline like who knows like who knows what could happen there so um, he probably needs at least one more live BP before he starts a rehab assignment, maybe two more live BPs, but he's on the mend as well. Yeah, he should be ready by Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, <laughs> Spencer Turnbull hasn't pitched in two years. And by Thanksgiving, November 24th? Yeah, November 24th, he should be ready to go. Um, you know, he, he probably will 
be playing uh, in the Puerto Rican Winter League just to test things out, probably feel a few twinges, probably have to lay off, and he'll be back in spring training 2024 before you know it. And uh, Scott Boros will be having talks with Scott Harris about uh, why Spencer Turnbull is not part of the mix. I so, think he's on the mend. I think we'll see him soon. Pump the brakes mm-hmm. on that. Did you, did you did you get the cynical nature of my belief in Spencer Turnbull? Yes. So yeah, yeah well, you know, it might be the twelve and twenty nine career record, or I don't know, or the career four five five ERA. Yeah, it's just the endless stream of various injuries. Um, you know, it's who knows. I mean, it's like I could see somebody throwing something out a window in New York and somehow landing on them. Who, who, who the heck knows what happens to Spencer Turnbull? Just never healthy. It's been a really, really long time since he's been healthy. And even when he's pitching, it's just a matter of time until he's not healthy. So wish him the best of luck, though. Hope he heals up. Uh, wanted to ask you when our Clark and McGonagall signing, I assume it's sometime late this week. They probably already have negotiated it and they just want to have a day when the team's home. Is that sound to you like a little PR reaction there? Yeah, maybe, but they need to sign by July 25th. So that's the day that, um, assistant general manager, Rob Metzler continued to reference, um, when we were on zoom calls about, you know, trying to sign guys and, because, I mean, look, I, I think it is important really quick just to touch on their draft and the way that they went about it. They went after a lot of high school guys, especially in the late rounds. Um, we saw Bradley Stewart, a left-handed pitcher in the seventh round, Ethan Ferris, a third baseman in the 18th round, and then Jonathan Rogers, a right-hander in the 20th round. So those are three late high school picks that you hope that maybe they want to be pros and, and they want to just skip the college route. But all three of those guys have college commitments all to, to lower end, you know, type colleges, not to their, you know, the big powerhouses, not to like Vanderbilt or Auburn or, you know, Tennessee or LSU or anything like that, but they're all committed to college. And those are guys that the Tigers hoping to sign. But look, Rob Metzler even said, like, it's, it, it'd be pretty ambitious to say that we're going to try to sign all 20 guys. So the chances that those bottom guys, you know, sign, um, maybe that doesn't happen, but I do like their approach to the draft, but yes, Max Clark, Kevin McGonigal, they're, number three overall pick and their number 37 overall pick respectively are going to need to sign um, by the 25th of July. That's the date that he continued to reference. So we'll see if that ends up happening again. Max Clark talked about having a deal already in place. Um, Kevin McGonigal, who was really weird on the zoom call. Like he was talking about like, we'll see what happens. Um, You know, well, I want to be a professional baseball player one day. Um, there were a lot of like really weird comments, but it sounds like the Tigers have a deal in place. I don't think you make that pick at number 37 unless you have a number that you've already agreed to. Unless the kid woke up like the next day and said like, yeah, I don't want to play for the Tigers anymore. Like I want to go to college. Like I, I don't really know. But either way, I would expect the Tigers to sign both Max Clark and Kevin McGonigal um, before the date that they need to do so. And so, we had a tremendous piece written by Jeff Seidel. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jenks Diaz was fascinating. I suggest everybody read it. It's in the free. You can find her pod there too, by the way. And why don't you give me a fast 60 seconds on uh, the Jenks Diaz story. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, look, I really want you guys to go read Jeff's story, freep.com. Like, it's one of those that, I mean, and Jeff has those stories and he, he does it quite often, but they're, they're, they're like, can't miss Jeff Seidel stories. And that's one of the can't miss stories because the, the journey is so incredible. I would be doing it a disservice if I tried to explain it all to you, but right-hander like that lifetime. the Tigers picked up. Yeah, no, look, I mean, right-hander. Lifetime movie quality. Exactly. Right-hander that the Tigers picked up out of Hazleton area high school in Pennsylvania, except he didn't pitch in high school. Like he came over from the Dominican Republic and wasn't eligible to pitch this year. They were throwing bullpens on the side ends up going to the MLB draft league and is able to throw a little bit there. But the Tigers were on him when he was throwing bullpens and he got noticed because there were some you know eyes on a different guy on his team that it, you got to go check it out. But the Tigers get him in the eighth round and he might be a complete steal. 6'4", 215, 18 years old, high school pitcher. You don't get a lot of high school guys in the eighth round. Like that just doesn't happen very often. 
Um, the Tigers were able to get Andrew Dunford in the 12th round with, you know, some financial dances that they were able to do. They were able to get Paul Wilson and Carson Rucker, um, a left-handed pitcher and a shortstop in the third and fourth round, doing a little dance with the money again um, to make it work with the bonus pool. But to get Diaz in the eighth round, that could be a really big steal for them. I'm very interested to see how player development works with him, but it's got a, a high spin slider, a firm fastball. There's a lot to like. Go check out Jeff's story, though, for the, the full, yeah, full it, information. Yeah, it was pretty great. All right, it's time to get out of here. So I uh, want to remind everybody to, you know, comment, rate, subscribe everywhere you can find podcasts. I want also to uh, give a shout out to our executive producers, Kirk Crawford and Ann Jeanette Delgado, who I got a chance to see this past week. Our producer, Robin Chan. I want to give a shout out to Savannah because pretty soon she's going to be walking down the aisle with Evan Petzl. And uh, it's, it's not too far away, people. Evan Petzl's getting married. Except separate. The market. Can't wait. Probably the most handsome beat writer in, uh, in Major League Baseball, at least the best hair for sure. And, uh, yeah, Savannah will be taking them off the market. So uh, that's exciting stuff. We're going we're to discuss some wedding prep here in a, in a future pod. I want to give a shout-out to my grandson, Braden Michael Gorosh, who has a birthday number two tomorrow. So there will be some cake and some bubbles and uh, what could be much better than that. So for my partner, Evan Petzl, this is Mark Gorosh. We'll see you next week. Peace.